for just a second. And it's recording. Okay. So welcome everyone to another nighttime reading. Hello, Kaylee. Thank you for popping in. We're just getting started from Chapter 3 of Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles. And as I was saying just a moment before, we ended, as far as I'm aware, we ended for when Dr. Mortimer was telling Holmes and Watson that the footprints that he saw near the body were not a man's or a woman's. They were, in fact, the footprints of a gigantic hound. And we'll begin at chapter three, which is chapter three, the problem. I confess at these words, a deep shudder passed through me. There was a thrill in the doctor's voice, which showed that he was himself deeply moved by that which he told us. Holmes leaned forward in his excitement, and his eyes had the hard, dry glitter which shot from him from them when he was keenly interested. You saw this as clearly as I see you, and you said nothing. What was the use? How was it that no one else saw it? The marks were some twenty yards from the body, and no one gave them a thought. I don't suppose I should have done so had I not known this legend. There are many sheepdogs on the moor, no doubt, but this was no sheepdog. You say it was large, enormous, but it had not approached the body. No. What sort of night was it? Damp and raw. But not actually raining? No. What is the alley like? There are two lines of old yew hedge, 12 feet high and impenetrable. The walk in the center is about 80 feet, is about eight feet across. Is there anything between the hedges and the walk? Yes. There is a strip of grass about six feet broad on either side. I understand that the yew hedge is penetrated at one point by a gate. Yes, a wicket gate, which leads on to the moor. Is there any other opening? None. So that to reach the yew alley, one either has to come down from the house or else to enter by the moor gate. There is an exit through the summer house at the far end. Had Sir Charles reached this? No, he lay about 50 yards from it. Now tell me, Dr. Mortimer, and this is important, the marks which you saw were on the path and not on the grass. No marks could show on the grass. Were they on the same side of the path as the moor gate? Yes, they were on the edge of the path and the same side as the moor gate. You interest me exceedingly. Another point. Was the wicket gate closed? Closed and padlocked? 
How high was it? About four feet high. Then anyone could have got over it. Yes. And what marks did you see by the wicked gate? None in particular. Good heavens, did no one examine? Yes, I examined myself and found nothing. It was all very confused. Sir Charles had evidently stood there for five or ten minutes. How do you know that? Because the ash had twice dropped from his cigar. Excellent. This is a colleague, Watson, after our own hearts, but the marks. He left his own marks all over that small patch of gravel. I could discern no others. Sherlock Holmes struck his hand against his knee with an impatient gesture. If I had only been there, he cried, it is evidently a case of extraordinary interest, and one which presented immense opportunities to the scientific expert. That gravel page upon which I might have read so much has been long ere this smudged by rain and defaced by the clogs of curious peasants. Oh, Mr. Mortimer, Dr. Mortimer, to think that you should not have called me in. You have indeed much to answer for. I could not call you in, Mr. Holmes, without disclosing these facts to the world, and I have already given my reasons for not wishing to do so. Besides, besides, why do you hesitate? There is a realm in which the most acute and most experienced of detectives is helpless. You mean that thing is supernatural? I did not positively say so, but you evidently think it. Since the tragedy, Mr. Holmes, there have come to my ears several instances which are hard to reconcile with the settled order of nature. For example, I find that before the terrible event occurred, several people had seen a creature upon the moor which corresponds with this Baskerville demon, and which could not possibly be any animal known to science. They all agreed that it was a huge creature luminous, ghastly, and spectral. I have cross-examined these men, one of them a hard-headed countryman, one a farrier, and one a moorland farmer, who all tell the same story of this dreadful apparition, exactly corresponding to the hellhound of the legend. I assume, I assure, you that there is a reign of terror in the district, and that it is hardy man who will cross the moor at night. And you, a trained man of science, believe it to be supernatural? I do not know what to believe. Holmes shrugged his shoulders. I have hitherto confined my investigations to this world, said he. In a modest way, I have combated evil, but to have on, to take on the father of evil himself would perhaps be too ambitious a task. Yet you must admit that the footmark is material. The original hound was material enough to tug a man's throat out, and yet he was diabolical as well. 
I see that you have quite gone over to the supernaturalists. But now, Dr. Mortimer, tell me this. If you hold these views, why have you come to consult me at all? You tell me in the same breath that it is useless to investigate Sir Charles' death and that you desire me to do it. I did not say that I desired you to do it. Then how can I assist you? By advising me as to what I should do with Sir Charles, with Sir Henry Baskerville, who arrives at Waterloo Station, Dr. Mortimer looked at his watch, in exactly one hour and a quarter. Him, he being the heir? Yes. On the death of Sir Charles, we inquired for this young gentleman and found that he had been farming in Canada. From the accounts which have reached us, he is an excellent fellow in every way. I speak now, not as a medical man, but as a trustee and executor of Sir Charles's will. There is no other claimant, I presume? None. The only other kinsman whom we have been able to trace was Roger Baskerville the youngest of the three brothers of whom poor Sir Charles was the elder. The second brother, who died young, is the father of this lad Henry. The third, Roger, was the black sheep of the family. He came of the old masterful Baskerville strain, Baskerville strain and was the very image, they tell me, of the family picture of old Hugo. He made England too hot to hold him, fled to Central America, and died there in 1876 of, of yellow fever. Henry is the last of the Baskervilles. In one hour and five minutes, I meet him at Waterloo Station. I have had a wire that he arrived at Southampton this morning. Now, Mr. Holmes, what would you advise me to do with him? Why should he not go to the home of his fathers? It seems natural, does it not? And yet consider that every Baskerville who goes there meets with an evil fate. I feel sure that if Sir Charles could have spoken with me before his death, he would have warned me against bringing this, the last of the old race, and the heir to great wealth, to that deadly place. And yet it cannot be denied that the prosperity of the whole poor, bleak countryside depends upon his presence. All the good work which has been done by Sir Charles will crash to the ground if there is no tenant of the hall. I fear lest I should be swayed too much by my own obvious interest in the matter, and that is why I bring the case before you and ask for your advice. Holmes considered for a little time. Put into plain words, the matter is this, he said. In the opinion there is a in your opinion there is a diabolical agency which makes Dartmoor an unsafe abode for the Baskerville. That is your opinion. At least I might go the length of saying that there is some evidence that this may be so. Exactly. 
But surely, if your supernatural theory is be correct, it could work the young man evil in London as well as in Devonshire. A devil with merely local powers, like a parish vestry, would be too inconceivable a thing. You put the matter more flippantly, Mr. Holmes, than you would probably do if you were brought into personal contact with these things. Your advice, then, as I understand it, is that the young man will be as safe in Devonshire as in London. He comes in 50 minutes. What would you recommend? I recommend, sir, that you take a cab, call off your spaniel who is scratching at my front door, and proceed to Waterloo to meet Sir Henry at Baskerville. And then, and then you will say nothing to him at all until you have made up my mind about the matter. Until I have made up my mind about the matter. How long will it take you to make up your mind? 24 hours. At 10 o'clock tomorrow, Dr. Mortimer, I will be much obliged to you if you will call upon me here, and it will be of help to me in my plans for the future if you will bring Sir Henry Baskerville with you. I will do so, Mr. Holmes. He scribbled the appointment on his shirt cuff and hurried off and hurried off in his strange, peering, absent-minded fashion. Holmes stopped him at the head of the stair. Only one more question, Dr. Mortimer. You say that before Sir Charles Baskerville's death, several people saw this apparition upon the moor. Three people did. Did they see it after? I have not heard of any. Thank you. Good morning. Holmes returned to his seat with that quiet look of inward satisfaction, which meant that he had a congenial tasks before him. Going out, Watson, unless I can help you. No, my dear fellow, it is at the hour of action that I turn to you for aid. But this is splendid, really unique from some points of view. When you pass Bradley's, would you ask him to send up a pound of the strongest shag tobacco? Thank you. It would be as well if you could make it convenient not to return before evening. Then I should be very glad to compare impressions as to this most interesting problem which has been submitted to us this morning. I knew that seclusion and solitude were very necessary for my friend in those hours of intense mental concentration, during which he weighed every particular of evidence, constructed alternative theories, balanced one against the other, and made up his mind as to which points were essential and which immaterial. I therefore spent the day at my club and did not return to Baker Street until evening. It was nearly nine o'clock when I found myself in the sitting room once more. My first impression as I opened the door was that a fire had broken out, for the room was so filled with smoke that the light of the lamp upon the table was blurred by it. As I entered, however, my fears were set at rest, for it was the acrid fumes of strong, coarse tobacco, which took me by the throat and set me coughing. 
Through the haze, I had a vague vision of Holmes in his dressing gown, coiled up in the armchair with his black clay pipe between his lips. Several rolls of paper lay around him. Caught cold, Watson, said he. No, it's this poisonous atmosphere. I suppose it is pretty thick, now that you mention it. Thick? It is intolerable. Open the window, then. You have been at your club all day, I presume. My dear Holmes, am I right? Certainly, but how? He laughed at my bewildered expression. There is a delightful freshness about you, Watson, which makes it a pleasure to exercise any small powers which I possess in your presence. A gentleman goes forth on a showery and miry day. He returns immaculate in the evening with the gloss still on his hat and his boots. He has been a fixture, therefore, all day. He is not a man with intimate friends. Where, then, could he have been? It is not obvious? Well, it is rather obvious. The world is full of obvious things, which nobody by any chance ever observes. Where do you think that I have been? A fixture also. On the contrary, I had been to Devonshire. In spirit? Exactly. My body has remained in this armchair and has, I regret to observe, consumed in my absence two large pots of coffee and an incredible amount of tobacco. After you left, I sat down I sent down to Stanford's for the ordnance map of this portion of the moor and my spirit has hovered over it all day. I flatter myself that I could find my way about. A large scale map, I presume. Very large. He unrolled one section and held it over his knee. Here you have the particular district which concerns us. This is Baskerville Hall in the middle. What a, with a wood around it? Exactly. I fancy a yew alley, though not marked under that name, must stretch along this line with the moor, and as you perceive, upon the right of it. This small clump of buildings here is the hamlet of Grimpen, where our friend Dr. Mortimer has his headquarters. Within a radius of five miles, there are, as you see, only a few scattered dwellings. There is Laughter Hall, which was mentioned in the narrative. There is a house indicated here, which may be the resident of the naturalist Stapleton, if I remember right, was his name. Here are two moorland farmhouses, High Tor and Foulmire. Then 14 miles away, the great convict prison of Princetown. Between and around these scattered points extends the desolate, lifeless moor. This, then, is the stage upon which tragedy has been played, and upon which we may help to play it again. It must be a wild place. Yes, the setting is a worthy one if the devil did desire to have a hand in the affairs of men. 
then you are yourself inclining to the supernatural explanation? The devil's agents may be of flesh and blood, may they not? There are two questions waiting for me, for us at the outset. The one is whether any crime has been committed at all. The second is, what is the crime and how was it committed? Of course, if Dr. Mortimer's surmise should be correct, and we are dealing with the forces outside the ordinary laws of nature, there is an end of our investigation. But we are bound to exhaust all other hypotheses before falling back upon this one. I think we will shut that window again, if you don't mind. It is a singular thing, but I find that a concentrated atmosphere helps a concentration of thought. I have not pushed it to the length of getting into a box to think, but that is the logical outcome of my convictions. Have you turned the case over in your mind? Yes, I have thought a good deal of it in the course of the day. What do you make of it? It is very bewildering. It has certainly a character of its own. There are points of distinction about it. That change in the footprints, for example. What do you make of that? Mortimer said that the man had walked on tiptoe down that portion of the alley. He only repeated what some fool had said at the inquest. Why should a man walk on tiptoe down the alley? What then? He was running, Watson. Running desperately, running for his life, running until he burst his heart and fell dead upon his face. Running from what? There lies our problem. There are indications that the man was crazed with fear before ever he began to run. How can you say that? I am presuming that the cause of his fears came to him across the moor. If that were so, and it seems most probable, only a man who had lost his wits would have run from the house instead of towards it. If the gypsy's evidence may be taken as true, he ran with cries for help in the direction where help was least likely to be. Then again, whom was he waiting for that night? And why was he waiting for him in the U Valley rather than in his own house? You think that he was waiting for someone? The man was elderly and infirm. We can understand his taking an evening stroll. But the ground was damp and the night inclement. Is it natural that we should stand for ten or five minutes as Dr. Mortimer, with more practical sense than I should have given him credit for? Deduced from the cigar ash? But he went out every evening. I think it unlikely that he waited at the Moorgate every evening. On the contrary, the evidence is that he avoided the moor. That night he waited there. It was the night before he made his departure for London. The thing takes shape, Watson. It becomes coherent. Might I ask you to hand me my violin? We will postpone all further thought upon this business until I have had the advantage of meeting Dr. Mortimer and Sir Henry Baskerville 
in the morning. And that is the end of chapter 3. It is 8.25, so about 20 more minutes, I think. We could do that. But I need to switch devices because apparently my... Well, let's double check and see here. Can I walk? Can I stop on here? I don't think anybody's stop being able to hear on Discord, of course. Of course, why not? Um, okay, so it seems to be green again, so I don't know what's up with that. But yes. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So it seems to be up on Discord again. It's green again. I don't know. There's a delay. So I've got it on my phone now so we can continue. If everybody would like me to continue on the chapter four, I should be able to get chapter four done in about 20 minutes. And then we'll stop at 8.45. Okay. So, chapter four. Sir Henry Baskerville. Our breakfast table was cleared early, and Holmes waited in his dressing gown for the promised interview. Our clients were punctual to their appointments, for the clock had just struck ten when Dr. Mortimer was shown up, followed by the young baronet. The latter was small, alert, dark-eyed man about 38 years of age, very sturdily built, with thick black eyebrows and strong, pugnacious face. He wore a ruddy-tinted tweed suit and had the weather-beaten appearance of one who has spent most of his time in the open air. And yet there was something in his steady eye and the quiet assurance of his bearing, which indicated the gentleman. <laughs> this is Sir Henry Baskerville, said Dr. Mortimer. Why, yes, said he. And the strange thing is, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, that if my friend here has not proposed coming round to you this morning, I should have come on my own account. I understand that you think our little, I understand that you think out little puzzles, and I've had one this morning which wants more thinking out than I am able to give it. Pray take a seat, Sir Henry. I have, I understand you to say that you have yourself had some remarkable experience since you arrived in London. None of much importance, Mr. Holmes. Only a joke, as like as not. It was this letter, if you call it a letter, which reached me this morning. He laid the envelope upon the table, 
and he had all bent over it, and we all bent over it. It was of common quality, grayish in color. The address, Sir Henry Baskerville, Northumberland Hotel, was printed in rough characters. The postmark, Charing Cross, and the date of posting the preceding evening. Who knew that you were going to the Northumberland Hotel? asked Holmes, glancing keenly across at our visitor. No one could have known. We only decided after I met Dr. Mortimer. But Dr. Mortimer was no doubt already stopping there. No, I had been staying with a friend, said the doctor. There was no possible indication that we intended to get to this hotel. Hum, someone seems to be very, to be of fool's cap paper, wait a second Okay. Hum, someone seems to be very of fool's cap paper folded into four. This he opened and spread That sentence does not make sense. Folded into four. This he opened and spread flat upon the table. Across the middle of it, a single sentence had been formed by the expedient of pasting printed words upon it. It ran, As you value your life or your reason, keep away from the more. The word more only was printed in ink. Now, said Sir Baskerville, perhaps you will tell me, Mr. Holmes, what in thunder is the meaning of that? and who it is that makes, that takes so much interest in my affairs. What do you make of it, Dr. Mortimer? You must allow that there is nothing supernatural about this, at any rate. No, sir, but it might very well come from someone who is convinced that the business is supernatural. What business? asked Sir Henry sharply. It seems to me that all you gentlemen know a great deal more than I do about my own affairs. You, you shall share our knowledge before you leave this room, Sir Henry. I promise you that, said Sherlock Holmes. We will confine ourselves for the present, with your permission, to this very interesting document. which must have been put together and posted yesterday evening. Have you yesterday's times, Watson? It is here in the corner. Might I trouble you for it? The inside page, please, with the leading articles. He glanced swiftly over it, running his eyes up and down the columns. Capital article this on free trade permits Permit me to give you an ex extract from it. You may be cajoled into imagining that your own special trade or your own industry will be encouraged by a protective tariff, but it stands to reason that such legislation must in the long run keep away 
wealth from the country, diminish the value of our imports, and lower the general conditions of life in this island. What do you think of that, Mr. Watson? cried Holmes in high glee, rubbing his hands together with satisfaction. Don't you think that is an admirable sentiment? Dr. Mortimer looked at Holmes with an air of professional interest, and Sir Henry Baskerville turned a pair of puzzled dark eyes upon me. I don't know much about the tariff and things of that kind, said he, but it seems to me we've got a bit off the trail as far as the note is concerned. On the contrary, I think we are particularly hot upon the trail, Sir Henry. Watson here knows more about my methods than you do, but I fear that even he has not quite grasped the significance of this sentence. No, I confess that I see no connection. And yet, my dear Watson, there is so very close a connection that the one is extracted out of the other. You, your, your life, reason, value, keep away from the... Don't you see how whence these words have been taken? By thunder, you're right. Well, if that isn't smart, cried Sir Henry. If any possible doubt remained, it is settled by the fact that keep away and from the are cut out in one piece. Well, now, so it is. Really, Mr. Holmes, this exceeds anything which I could have imagined, said Dr. Mortimer, gazing at my friend in amazement. I could understand anyone saying that the words were taken from a newspaper, but that you should name which, and add that it came from the leading article, is really one of the most remarkable things which I have ever known. How did you do it? Most certainly. But how? Because that is my special hobby. The differences are obvious. The supra orbital crest, the facial angle, and the maximary curve, the, but this is my special hobby, and the difference. Okay, this, this copy of Sherlock Holmes is giving me problems. The, but this is my special hobby, and the differences are equally obvious. There is as much difference to my eyes between the leaded bourgeois type of the Times article and the slovenly print of an article of the evening halfpenny paper as there could be between your Negro and your Equamois. Um, the detection of types is one of the most elementary branches of knowledge to the special expert in crime. Though I confess that one, once when I was young, very young, I confused the Leeds Mercury with the Western Morning News. 
but a times leader is entirely distinctive, and these words could have been taken from nothing else. As it was done from yesterday, the strong probability was that we should find the words in yesterday's issue. So far as I can follow you then, Mr. Holmes, said Sir Henry Baskerville, someone cut this message with scissors, nail scissors. You can see that it was a very short-plated scissors, since the cutter had to take two snips over keep away. That is so. Someone then cut out the message with a pair of short-plated scissors, pasted it with paste, gum, said Holmes, with gum onto the paper. But I want to know why the word more should have been written, because he could not find it in print. <laughs> the other words were all simple and might be found in any issue, but more would be less common. Why, of course, that would explain it. Have you read anything else in the message, Mr. Holmes? There are one or two indications, and yet the utmost pains have been taken to remove all clues. The address, you observe, is printed in rough characters. But the Times is a paper which is seldom found in any hands but those of the highly educated. We may take it, therefore, that the letter was composed by an educated man, who wished to pose as an uneducated one. And his effort to conceal his own writing suggests that writing might be known or come to be known by you. Again, you will be observe that the words are not gummed in an accurate line, but that some are much higher than others. Life, for example, is quite out of its proper place. That may point to carelessness, or it may point to agitation and hurry upon the part of the cutter. On the whole, I incline to the latter view, since the paper was evidently important, and it is unlikely that the composer of such letter would be careless. If he were in a hurry, it opens up the interesting question of why he should be in a hurry since any letter posted up to early morning would reach Sir Henry before he would leave his hotel. Did the composer fear an interruption, and from whom? We are coming now rather into the region of guesswork, said Dr. Mortimer. Say rather into the region where we balance probabilities and choose the most likely. It is the scientific use of the imagination, but we have always some material basis on which to start our speculation. Now, you would call it a guess, no doubt, but I am almost certain that this address has been written in a hotel. How in the world can you say that? If you examine it carefully, you will see that both pen and ink have given the writer trouble. The pen has spluttered twice in a single word and has run dry three times in a short address, showing that there was a very little ink in the bottle. 
Now, a private pen or ink bottle is seldom allowed to be in such a state. And the combination of the two must be quite rare. But you that we could but that could we examine the waste paper baskets of the hotels around Charing Cross until we found the remains of a mutilated Times letter, we could lay our hands straight upon the person who sent this singular message. Hello, hello. What's this? He was carefully examining the fool's cap, upon which the words were posted, holding it only an inch or two from his eyes. Well, nothing, said he, throwing it down. It is a blank half sheet of paper without even a watermark upon it. I think we have drawn as much as we can from this curious letter. And now, Sir Henry, has anything else of interest happened to you since you have been in London? Why no, Mr. Holmes, I think not. You have not observed anyone follow or watch you? I seem to have walked right into the thick of a dime novel, said our visitor. Why in thunder should anyone follow or watch me? We are coming to that. You have nothing else to report to us before we go into this matter? Well, it depends upon what you think worth reporting. I think anything out of the ordinary routine of life well worth reporting. Sir Henry smiled. I don't know much of British life yet, for I have spent nearly all my time in the States and in Canada. But I hope that to lose one of your boots is not part of the ordinary routine of life over here. You have lost one of your boots? My dear sir, cried Dr. Mortimer, it is only mislaid. You will find it when you return to the hotel. What is the use of troubling Mr. Holmes with the trifles of this kind? Well, he asked me for anything outside the ordinary routine. <laughs> exactly said Holmes. However foolish the incident may seem, you have lost one of your boots, you say. Well, mislaid it somehow. I put them both outside my door last night, and there was only and it was and there was only one in the morning. I could get no sense out of the chap who cleans them. The worst of it is that I only bought the pair last night in the Strand, and I have never had them on. If you have never worn them, why did you put them out to be cleaned? They were tan boots and had never been varnished. That was why I put them out. Then I understand that on your arrival in London yesterday, you went out at once and bought a pair of boots. I, get, I did a good deal of shopping. Dr. Mortimer here went round with me. You see, if I am to be squire down there, I must dress the part. And it may be that I have got a little careless in my ways out west. Among other things, I bought these brown boots, gave six dollars for them, and had one stolen before I even had them on my feet. 
It seems a singularly useless thing to steal, said Sherlock Holmes. I confess that I share Dr. Mortimer's belief that it will not be long before the missing boot is found. And now, gentlemen, said the baronet with, dis with decision, it seems to me that I have spoken quite enough about the little that I know. It is time that you kept your promise and gave me a full account of what we are all driving at. Your request is very reasonable one, Holmes answered. Dr. Mortimer, I think you could not do better than to tell your story as you told us. Thus encouraged, our scientific friend drew his papers from his pocket and presented the whole case as he had done upon the morning before. Sir Henry Baskerville listened with the deepest attention and with an occasional exclamation of surprise. Okay, so it is now 8.47. And we're getting close to the, we're not even close to the end of that chapter. So we're about maybe halfway through. So we're just going to get started at. Let's see here. So I believe that next Monday we will be, we will begin after he has been um, told what is going on at that point because it is 8.47 now and my voice is getting a little bit tired. So we'll stop there and we will be reconvene for this particular story next Monday. But we'll be back this Tuesday with, I believe it's Persuasion. Jane Austen's Persuasion, I believe. I've ever written down my schedule here. Yes, Tuesdays are Persuasion. So we'll be back with the next part of Persuasion tomorrow. At the same time here, 8 p.m., starting at 8 p.m. I send invites out about 10 minutes before 8, and we begin reading at 8 o'clock sharp. And we continue as we did tonight until 8.45. Alright, let's pop over to Discord, see if anybody showed up in Discord. Um, we had a little bit of an issue with the voice earlier, but it doesn't seem that anybody popped in, or at least nobody that's talking in the chat. Um, thank you everyone for popping in and sticking around while I read Sherlock Holmes. I hope everybody enjoyed everything this evening. And I wish you well, and hope you have a good e rest of your evening, and good nights. And see you tomorrow.